It's Friday, April the 9th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. There were further street disturbances in Northern Ireland last night with loyalist and nationalist youths clashing at interfaces in Belfast and police using water cannon to try to bring the situation under control. That situation seems to have been escalating all week and it's been causing increasing concern in Dublin and London as well as in Northern Ireland itself. So what's going on and what, if anything, can be done to lower the political temperature? I'm joined by the Irish Times columnist Newton Emerson. Newton, you're very welcome. Good morning. Um. Is this an escalatory curve? Are things getting worse as the nights go on over the course of this week? Um, we're certainly on an escalation over the week. Uh, at the start of this week, uh, as, as I wrote in the paper there on, on Wednesday, we had two different types of rioting, the, the criminally motivated and the politically motivated, with the uh, with the southeast Antrim UDA causing most of the violence in Carrick, Fergus and Newton Abbey. That now seems to have died down. And we, we now have an, an, another form of rioting taking place, which is... Uh, organised on social media, which the PS and I say the main loyalist groups are not, in fact, orchestrating at all, um, not getting involved in. The uh, loyalists uh, themselves say they want to have um, protests, unnotified parades uh, in loyalist areas. Their strategy there appears to be to to uh, tempt the police into enforcing parades legislation. But then I say that they have nothing to do and don't want this kind of rioting that is taking place. They claim it's being organised by a handful of people on fake Facebook pages, that um, fake media, fake news kind of uh, notices of, uh, of, of planned protests are circulating online. So if that is correct, if what they're saying is true, then the loyalists have lost control of the situation. And I think that is something that, uh, that has everyone very worried. So let's go back to the start of what you were saying there, because most of this conversation is going to be about the the politics of this, but in your column this week, you also talk about the the criminal reality of this, which you which you touched on there. And maybe you could lay that out for our listeners. What is the criminal reality of these some of these loyalist organisations? Who are they, and what threat do they feel they face that might have caused them to act in this way recently? We have two main loyalist organisations: the UDA and the UVF. Uh, each of those have a number of what you might call dissident factions. Um, in East Belfast in the UDS case, in South East Antrim in the UDS case, also in parts of North Antrim with the UDA. Uh, really, I mean, it, it, people joke about the good and bad UDA, for example, but it's it's bad and worse. Uh, for years now, attempts have been made to uh, what's called transition them into community organisations, usher them off the stage, use various other peace process terms. Uh, Sermon has a policy, an active policy on that, and as recently as last November, uh, loyalists were offering, were asking for you know a few million pounds to be put to be paid off. They realised that um, new criminal asset seizure laws are coming in. That they had seemed to think that their time is coming to an end, uh, and they wanted. And the police are closing in on them over a number of murders and feud-related uh, deaths as well. So they want to. Uh, most of them want a way out. Uh, an intelligence assessment there last year as well said that the, these groups have thousands of active members. Uh, most of them feel trapped in their membership. They're not allowed out. They're not allowed to leave. And uh, and so we were, I think, towards something coming towards something of an ending with violent loyalism, with criminal loyalism. But this is all now blown up in everyone's face over uh, over a set of escalating political grievances, Brexit, constant talk about a border poll in the United Ireland, which of course unionism has caused by losing its majority, by collapsing Stormont, and but through Brexit as well. Um, and there are also, of course, the, uh, the the loyalist grievances, what they call two tier policing, 
that was all escalated by the Bobby Story funeral last year and the refusal to prosecute anyone in Sinn Féin. Uh, of course, the real reason that loyalists are, are, are aggravated about the police is that the police are coming after them and their dissident factions and their criminal empires. But they, they can always point to just enough differences of treatment between one case and another, obviously, to, uh, to, to stir up agitation. And that's been a major driver of this as well. It's one of the reasons why the loyalists want to organise these unnotified parades and protests to try and draw the police into enforcement. They want to be able to say, look, the police are trying to stop our unnotified protest when they wouldn't prosecute anyone over an IRA funeral. And that is a trap now that the PSNI needs to be very careful to avoid. So the political issue of the Bobby Story funeral, to take that one first, um, clearly that's of concern, not just to the the groups that you're talking about there, but has been the subject of increasingly vociferous protests from the mainstream unionist parties, the DUP, the UUP, and the traditional unionist voice, the TUV, uh, as well, fall into acronym soup here very, uh, very quickly. But... um, is there some justification in the, in the, in that criticism? Is there is is it really? I know it's very very hard to take an even handed approach to this. Is there any justification to the idea that Republicans are getting away with things that their loyalist equivalents wouldn't? Um, yes, there is. Let, let let's be honest about that. Um, now, uh, major loyalist leaders have been immune from prosecution and arrest for decades as well, although that does seem to be coming to an end. That, of course, is what is is really aggravating them. But the fact is that um, that the IRA has a political wing and the UDA and the UVF do not have one of any consequence. Uh, And that you know, that, that is a factor that, that, that it seems difficult for the criminal justice system to get its head around. Um, the decision not to prosecute over the Bobby Story funeral is being blamed on the police because that's who currently the, the loyalists are are after, are concerned about. The decision was actually taken by the Public Prosecution Service. They've explained that decision very unusually. I think that's only the second time I'm aware of them doing it recently. Uh, the other time was over uh, refusing to prosecute most soldiers involved in Bloody Sunday. So it's a, something they take very seriously when they explain themselves, explain their positions. Um, personally, I thought the decision was pretty strange. They basically said, we can't prosecute because the law is too confusing. Although many of those from Sinn Féin at the funeral had actually drafted the law. So that is an argument that certainly should have gone before a judge, I think, or a magistrate. Let's face it, they're talking here about 200 pound fines. These are like traffic violations you're talking about in COVID breaches. That's part of the, the, the tragedy and absurdity of this situation. It has really driven this violence. And yet, really, you're talking about tiny fines from a magistrate's court. And the, the appearance that, um, that Sinn Féin can't even be subjected to that, rightly or wrongly, is, is so toxic. Does this go back to, I'm not sure if it was a flaw in the Good Friday Agreement and the way it was constructed, but maybe a way in which it has developed in the years since, which which wasn't predicted. Um, I mean, part of the process of the peace process culminating in the Good Friday Agreement was to bring um, political movements which were previously wedded to armed force and physical violence or terrorism or however you want to characterise it into the political process and out of the armed violence arena. And on the Republican side, that happened. Sinn Féin became the largest party and we had the process that we know of the largely the disarming of the IRA. On the loyalist side, it didn't. And now when we hear, we hear a lot of talk at the moment about how the communities where these disturbances are taking place are are not represented, that their views are not represented, although I wonder, you know, exactly what that means. But it's certainly the case that a parallel bringing in of the paramilitary groups into some form of political success and representation didn't happen. Is that part of the problem? 
Yes, that, that asymmetry you're referring to there has been widely acknowledged for the past 20 years as an issue. And the, uh, the Northern Ireland office and UK ministers were quite specific in the early years of the peace process about wanting that symmetry, about hoping that there would be what I, I mean, one NIO minister, uh, if I recall, actually referred to as a Protestant Sinn Féin. That was what they wanted. Uh, and it looked like they were going to get it in the mid to late 1990s. The UDA and UVF had two political parties, the uh, PUP and the UDP, I think they were called. Um, briefly, they appeared to challenge the DUP. Their vote rose, the DUP's vote fell. Um, DUP uh, councillors began to jump ship to the loyalist parties. Uh, the DUP took an extraordinarily cynical decision to uh, get into bed with an anti-agreement uh, loyalist uh, movement. That was the, the loyalist volunteer force. Uh, that they wanted uh, effectively their own you know, anti-agreement paramilitary wing at that point. <clears throat> but then, uh, of course, the, uh, the, the other problems of the, uh, of the peace process kicked in. Sinn Féin refused to decommission. There was uh, you know, continued IRA violence. And uh, so that, that destabilised the UUP. People began voting for the DUP. And uh, also, of course, unionists have always taken some kind of pride in not voting for paramilitaries. Uh, Republicans respond to that by saying, well, it's easy for unions to do that because they're in their own state. They have their own legitimate state structures. So, the, you know, they can say, well, we'll back the real army. Uh, they might say, well, that's what Sinn Féin and IRA supporters think they're doing too. Um, it's become um, academics and, and professional peace processors find it very difficult to acknowledge that decent people unionist mentality. It really appalls them when, in fact, most unionists think, you know, this this was a, a grinding indecency that the peace process should have held on to. But yes, that that constant asymmetry has fed its way constantly throughout the peace process and now exploded again. And and meanwhile, just to, to layer on top of that, uh, I was reading a uh, an opinion piece by Alex Kane, who's a sort of veteran unionist commentator, member of the veteran member of the Ulster Unionist Party, talking about how the, for the whole of his political life he he goes back to 1972 and a demonstration at Stormont being spoken to by by William Craig of the Vanguard Party that the so-called mainstream unionist parties have flirted with paramilitary loyalism when it suited them and dropped it like a hot potato when that suited them too. And that's been part of the dynamic on the unionist side of the of the, of the conflict, I suppose, for, for a couple of generations now at least. The only critique I have of that um, really is that it's a little bit too generous to the Machiavellian gifts of unionism. There are certainly always figures in mainstream unionist party parties who play footsie with violence or the threat of it. But the main fault of unionist parties is that um, is that they they run scared of it. I, I mean, a physical cardist, I think, is, a, is not an accusation you should make against anyone in politics in Northern Ireland, but uh, the f- fear of, uh, of alienating themselves from, from fringe loyalism and from that, that instinct uh, uh, within the, the unionist community is not something any of our main parties ever seem capable of doing. If they see, uh, you know, if they see a riot at one end of the street and, and a frightened crowd of their own voters at the other, it's the rioters they pander to, always. That there is never, uh, there is n- never a final reckoning with uh, with unionist forces or with loyalist forces from unionism, and uh, we're we're going to see that again. Uh, I think that we we'll, we will see equivocation from the DUP and, and even perhaps from the UUP uh, over uh, over the causes of this violence, um, and 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 that will um, you know that that will be the lack of leadership that people will complain about. So how does that play then with? 
this recurring thing, which I've been hearing a lot this week from spokespeople on the ground in uh, in East Belfast and and elsewhere, which is that the the people in those areas do not feel politically represented. And when I hear that, I think, well, they did vote for the UP largely, didn't they? Yes, um, they do. Although uh, I think that the, the the thinking that it is the, uh, the the middle classes and the garden centre unions who sit at home doesn't really isn't really borne out by statistics. You might find turnout is actually lower in working class areas. Um, they're, they're maybe just turned off politics completely. Uh, I mean, this, this constant complaint of we're not being listened to is partly a manufactured grievance, but also when you I mean, if you take a walk through that swathe of West and North Belfast. There is no doubt that it is uh, it is just a vast area of constant deprivation and, and hopelessness. And, and part of the hopelessness is that it has rained money and attention on that area for half a century. Uh, and, and physically in places when the builders get in, the, the material quality of the area can be quite good. But then you get into the wasteland of interface regions as well. And it's just... Um, it, 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 that that interface at Lanark Way, for example, has been one apparently for 150 years. It just there's just the, the hopelessness is the intractability of it, and uh, you know when those of us who remember the troubles look at what's happening now, part of that the, the despair that you feel is realizing the extent to which this will never be fixed. It can just snap back to square one. The rest of us can ignore it for the rest of our lives, and no amount of money or attention ever seems to fix it. That's pretty grim. In some ways, um, looking at that, it reminds me more, more than of anything else. It reminds me of the, and I'm not being critical of of any of these people, of the Brexit vote in certain parts of Northern England, of the Trump vote in certain parts of the United States. Previously, relatively prosperous, cohesive industrial communities in urban areas that feel that they've just been left to to rot. Um, yes, and and I think the uh, you know the, the slap it up your motivation in that vote. Um, I think it has to be acknowledged, um, I, and I think that there's only so much you, there's only so much you could go to understanding people's motivations before you know you you have to also give them some agency and uh, and, and and personal responsibility and say well you know this is this is a decision that that you took and you, we all have to work through the consequences. However, I am even as a remainer completely fed up with I told you so now. What is the you know what what interest is it serving? The uh, the obnoxiousness, the uh, the sneering at Brexit voters, uh, even as uh, as these problems roll out, is uh, is dreadful. It, it seems it can only be making things worse. It seems to be more important to far too many people to. Uh, to cling to their self-righteousness over this than to actually fix the problem, which at the end of the day is about shipping paperwork. That is the, the absurdity about this. Of all the things to fight over, you know, uh, why can this not be resolved? The reason I personally supported the protocol is because I never imagined in my wildest dreams that the EU would stick to pettifogging rules over smuggling that are of no relevance to Northern Ireland. There is no threat to the EU single market from ham being smuggled in via Felixstowe and Stranraer and Larne and Dundalk back into France. It's ludicrous. Uh, why are we having to make these checks, these very aggravating checks that, that are bound to have a constitutional import when we were promised that this would be a de-dramatised border we would hardly notice. How aggravating is it? Because I do wonder, listen to you, you know, whether, you know, how how much does the the 13-year-old kid 
throwing a throwing a petrol bomb um, last night really care about you know customs declarations forms or the fact I mean I don't even know you know you know can they get their lasagna in Asda tomorrow you know is that really a cause to go rioting or is it you know again a little bit bit like the Bobby Story issue a representative of a of a deeper grievance or a different kind of a grievance no it's the constant jeering about how the sea border has now reached the point where it it creates an economic united Ireland that's something of course that some loyalists are aggravating around as well but the constant constant sneering about the mistake that loyalists made in voting for Brexit, those that did, and how it will inevitably lever them out of the UK and uh, and they'll deserve it, has created this inevitable reaction. And uh, really, we have even quite moderate um, people and political leaders in the Republic gloating about this all and uh, and saying how inevitable it is that it it will uh, cause a united Ireland because of the of the great burden of uh, of of uh, of the sea border and its inevitable constitutional meaning you know that, that is the that is not the part the purpose of the protocol which was meant to protect peace in northern ireland uh, by introducing the very very minimum uh, required procedures to protect the eu single market which requires almost no protection from uh, from smuggling through northern ireland I suppose there is. I mean, there's always political posturing, and there has been some political posturing from from that quarter. But I mean, what I sense from most of, I suppose, what you might call the political establishment, the parties in the current government, is you know they want this bloody thing to work. You know, the Dublin has has a huge interest in making the the new relationships between the United Kingdom and, and Europe, and more specifically the ones on this island, work. Um, do, yes. Doesn't it? It does. Which means the 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 you know the. Uh, mitigation of the sea border to the point where um, where it, it it can be pointed to and said, look, th- this thing is hardly there because it hardly needs to be there. Uh, when, wh- where, where is the assessment of goods at risk? Where is the proof that all goods coming into Northern Ireland are goods at risk, as the EU has insisted against its own statements uh, last December? Uh, that that is the the gist of the argument here, and an absurd argument on which to risk restarting the troubles, an immoral argument. Um, why would we jeopardise life and property over uh, this hypothetical risk of food being smuggled in to the Republic? Where is the where is the even the economic basis to imagine that would ever be profitable? We're not talking about tobacco smuggling over the border here, uh, or, or, or 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 things which still still are motivated by VAT rules that haven't changed. Uh, this is uh, this is a technical argument, but one that has been allowed to be. Uh, to be blown up into into a constitutional issue that can motivate a thirteen year old to throw a petrol bomb over Lanark Way, uh, that that's the absurdity of it. I I, I suppose looking at it, I, I, my analysis of it would be that this is a combination of a certain kind of technocratic approach to these things coming from from Brussels, a kind of a sticklerdom, which is not very helpful at all, particularly in the earlier months, earliest months of this as we try to make it out. Uh, plus an inability of Northern Ireland as a political entity to make the case um, on behalf of Northern Ireland to to arrive at the position that you're talking about. Um, I mean, you mentioned agency earlier on. Isn't there a, a terrible lack of assumption of agency on the part of all the political parties, including the nationalist parties um, in Northern Ireland, that they should just bloody go to Brussels? And you know, lay the facts on the table of what's not working and what needs to be done to make it work. Well, it's it's the inability of the unionists to uh, to negotiate an approach with the protocol at all. They um, 
uh, you know, they, they have options to sit in on the committees that are making these decisions. Uh, Alliance has been proposing a veterinary alignment uh, deal that would solve much of the sea border problem. But of course, to get and, and has been taken very seriously by the EU. But of course, to get in on that, the unionists would have to accept the existence of the protocol and they have trapped themselves into a position where they're demanding its removal. I don't think it needs to be removed or renegotiated or amended as the loyalists are demanding that the loyalists only want an amendment actually to it um it simply needs to be operated as promised by both sides and while yes there, there is bureaucratic stickling from the eu there is that from the uk as well i've heard that uh, that sea border officials are you know overzealous this is part of the professionalism of the british civil service it's part of the reason we had brexit in the first place a lot of the the complaints of european officiousness that uh, UK people had were actually about Whitehall in its sense that we had to be the best damn Europeans out there. We had to enact every uh, every bit of, bit of European legislation, gold plate it, and the same kind of attitude is unfortunately being taken to the sea border. But yes, Stormont should be should be in there, arguing its case against that. But it's not cohesive enough to do that. That is the problem. And is there something more deep seated about the way in which you know the dynamics of, of unionist politics work? I'm looking at Dermot Ferreter has a column in um, in the Irish Times today, and I just quote this. He says it's striking how we're witnessing an updated version of the unionist denial and delusion of 50 years ago, and how the capacity to look forward and adapt to change reality is so compromised by recourse to historic siege tactics. I mean, that does describe the position of the main unionist parties right now, doesn't it? It does. No, I um, I think that uh, I I shouldn't ex- you shouldn't accept. Uh, accusations of a siege mentality from people who boast of putting unionism under siege. This is what unionists hear. We're surrounding you, we're outnumbering you, you're going to have a united Ireland that's inevitable. Oh, and what's this siege mentality about? Well, yeah, no, I don't think Dermot Ferreter is, is threatening Northern Ireland with a siege. Dermot's not saying that, but that is what that is what unionists hear. Uh, so, you know, the, the crowd surrounding the walls laughing at you for your siege mentality. It is, it's the final insult. So, uh, <laughs> so yes, the, the, once again, you, you know, the unionist parties are in their, in their lager. Uh, however, the unionist electorate has had enough. Uh, sufficient chunks of it are moving towards alliance now, it seems, for there to be a fundamental reordering of political parties on the cards. Uh, part of the reason the DUP uh, did this frantic U-turn against the protocol, it's only in January that Arlene Foster was trying to promote it, is that there was a poll, an internet poll came out in February showing that her party is just one point above Alliance, five points behind Sinn Féin, and losing its votes in two directions, to Alliance and the hardline TUV. So there's nothing, there's not, no position she can take that will get her out of this. Uh, she can't go, you know, to the hardline or moderate direction without, you know, losing to the to the other party. So uh, what is going to happen is there's going to be a fundamental change in Northern Ireland's politics. We're going to have perhaps Alliance as the second party, a Sinn Féin first minister. And um, that has been obviously coming for long enough now to show that the unionist voters driving it aren't scared about it. They're not going to be scared off by this uh, threat the DUP has always relied on, that you'll let a Sinn Féin minister in, in, in the top spot. That's not that's not deterring people from switching straight from the DUP to Alliance anymore. So uh, we, we might finally get a democratic answer to this uh, the, this unionist uh, intransigence problem. The issue, of course, is that uh, the DUP is not just going to sit there and let that happen. Uh, you know what what will they do? Will they you know will they bring down Stormont? Would the DUP sit in Stormont as number two? Uh, after all, the reason we have the St Andrews Agreement, the reason we have these uh, much more divisive rules at Stormont is that Sinn Féin and the DUP sat on the sidelines in the first part of devolution while the UUP and the SDLP were in charge and agitated and made trouble and boycotted until they got 
into top spot until they destabilized those institutions, destabilized the rival parties, and got into the first minister's office. Would they do that again? <laughs> it's a pretty bleak vista uh, you're, you're you're painting here. Um, I suppose the broader picture, which we've which kind of touched on here, is that, um, and I've even listening to people like Gregory Campbell of the DUP acknowledging this, is that the, the political landscape in Northern Ireland, as we know, has changed completely since 50 years ago, since the kind of uh, comparisons which Alex Kane and, and Dermot Ferreter were making there. And actually, it, it now sounds really odd, whereas previously it sounded infuriating to me when I hear unionist parties talk about the people of Northern Ireland and you can tell what they really mean is their side of the people uh, of Northern Ireland. Or when uh, somebody says that the people at the Bobby Story funeral are the real lawbreakers, you know? There's a certain kind of a language that that uh, was always jarring to, to me coming from my perspective, but now it's starting to sound downright weird and isn't unionism just really going to have to recalibrate because if those voters are going to the alliance they're going to have to deal with alliance at least to have any kind of political agency in the in the in the coming years and indeed decades well, I think the unionist population is recalibrating, but um, it has it has a number of parties that simply aren't going to be capable of doing it and even in Northern Ireland, political parties just keel over and die that does happen uh, voting patterns shift uh, when they do they shift overnight. Uh, especially actually on the nationalist side. Nationalism dumps its its long-term parties instantly as soon as it decides it's got a better one. That's happened three times in Northern Ireland's history. And unionism takes a little longer, but but can do the same. So um, now that we are in an, an, an era of three minorities, which I think is very clear in Northern Ireland, becoming very clear, um, I don't think that the population is coming to terms with that much faster than uh, than unionist politics. Newton, thanks very much. And you can read Newton's column every week in the Irish Times. That's it for today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. We'll be back again in your feed very soon. But remember that you can mail us with your thoughts at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. Mm-hmm.